0: Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you will hear Carrie Geyser Casey discussing Alexei Ratmansky's Chamber Symphony. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, May 8th, 2019, before a performance of the Shostakovich Trilogy. Hope you enjoy. It's my great pleasure to introduce Carrie Geyser Casey. Carrie received her PhD in performance studies from the University of California, Berkeley, and is a lecturer for the LEAP, Liberal Education for Arts Professionals program at St. Mary's College of California, which enables students to earn a BA while pursuing a career as a professional dancer. She's been involved with San Francisco Ballet since 2012, giving many talks on ballet history topics, and from 2016 to 2018, she served as our scholar-in-residence. Um, her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including Theater Journal and Dance Chronicle, and I will draw your attention uh, to a piece that was published last year in Dance Chronicle um, about Rutmanski's Chamber Symphony, and from which I think she'll be drawing some ideas for her talk tonight. So uh, with no further ado, I would like to introduce all of you to Carrie.
1: Hi, Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you, Jenny, for the introduction, and it's it's nice to be back here on this stage giving, giving talks to the enthusiastic San Francisco ballet audience. Um, what I'll be talking about tonight is the second ballet of Alexei Ratmansky's Shostakovich trilogy, entitled The Chamber Symphony. Um, and this talk is based on research and an article that I wrote for an academic journal, so unless you have a habit of hanging out in university libraries in the dance journal section, you probably didn't see it. So this gives me a good chance to share my work with a wider audience, and I'm very grateful for that. So who is Alexei Rotmansky? Uh, Ramansky is currently choreographer in residence at American Ballet Theater. He grew up in the Bolshoi Ballet School. He graduated in 1986, and then went to dance as, uh, went to dance internationally, first in the Ukraine, in Kiev, and then on to Denmark, the Royal Danish Ballet. And he really got his choreographic start when he began making works for the Bolshoi Ballet Ballerina Nina Ananiashvili. Um, He created several pieces for her, for her company, and started being picked up by, by different companies, by the Marinsky, who had him do a Cinderella in 2002, and things kind of blossomed from there. From 2003 to 2008, he served as artistic director of the Bolshoi Ballet. He left um, in 2008 and went to New York, where he now lives, where he works primarily for American Ballet Theater, but... Really travels all around the world. He's in high demand internationally as well. So I think it's very significant that Ratmansky grew up in the Soviet Union. He came of age during Glasnost and Perestroika, because this also means he grew up in the tradition of Soviet ballet. So at that time, um, he had never seen any of the choreography that was going on in the West. Uh, it was only in the 80s when these bootleg VHS tapes of performances of Balanchine's Apollo, for example, this was one of the first ballets that he saw come through. This was He was a, a teenager, and this was the first time that he saw what was happening in the West, and it opened his mind to different possibilities for what dance could be. Um, his style is a 180, generally speaking, from the the Bolshoi ballet style of that time. Bolshoi means big, um, and you see bigness in everything in Bolshoi style. Very big extensions, huge jumps, big emotions, very big, long, multi-act narrative ballets as well. And rattmann has gone in the opposite direction, by and large. His ballets focus on nuance and complexity, Uh, detail. focuses more on ambiguity rather than uh, a narrative with a clear ending and beginning. However, I do think that this this upbringing in the Soviet Union has influenced him choreographically in terms of the themes that he chooses for his ballets. you can really see him through his works, through the span of his career, trying to come to terms with or understand Russian identity, Russian culture, Soviet identity, Ukrainian identity. Um, And he actually shares, he has all three of these, possibly even a Jewish identity. He's half-Jewish on his father's side, although um, they were not practicing. So in some ways, it's the old adage, you know, you can take the choreographer out of Russia, but you can't take Russia out of the choreographer. Um, and even in some of his most abstract ballets, there's, there's always a kind of a sense of him working on, or having this part of himself in the background. Now, while Rotmansky was artistic director at the Bolshoi, he recreated Well, and afterward, the last ballet was done in 2011, and he left in 2008. He recreated uh, four ballets from the 1930s, from the era when socialist realism was important in Soviet art. And the 1930s was also a time when censorship and persecution of artists was becoming more and more pronounced as the decade wore on, as we came close to the Great Terror that happened in the late 1930s. And it's interesting that Ratmansky would return to this period. He's the only choreographer um, of the post-Soviet period to engage with these ballets. Um, You know, some of these ballets, one of them takes place on a collective farm. There are dairy workers and... Um, tractor drivers and people who dance with large sheaves of wheat, and so they're really, um, you know, they're not they're not ballets that anyone else had really thought were worth bringing back. Now, two of them, of course, have scores to Shostakovich, so that probably played some, uh, played a big part in Rotmansky's decision to to do these ballets while he was there. Now, it wasn't really clear what exactly he was trying to accomplish with these reconstructions, particularly when he brought the Bright Stream to the West in 2011. Um, its revival in the United States caused some to scratch their heads, as New Yorker, New Yorker critic jo- Joan Acachella put it. Wondering why a ballet that sent the librettist to the gulag um, and seriously curtailed the careers of two others, Lopukov, Fyodor Lopukov, who was the choreographer, and then also Shostakovich, who essentially stopped composing ballets after this point. So why, you know, why bring this ballet back, and, and why perform it? Oh, here's, um, here's the bright stream. You can see the, the backdrop. The ballet takes place on a collective farm. Now, in 2012 and 2013, Ratmansky reprised this interest in Soviet themes, this time with an evening of non-narrative ballets, also set to Shostakovich, titled The Shostakovich Trilogy. And the trilogy consists of three ballets, all titled after Shostakovich's musical compositions. We have Symphony No. 9 that opens the piece, Chamber Symphony, which is an orchestrated version of the composer's Eighth Quartet, and then his Piano Concerto Number One. But unlike the 1930s recreations, unlike the um, revival of these Socialist Realist ballets, the Shostakovich trilogy dealt unambiguously with themes such as surveillance and per- persecution in a context that is explicitly Soviet. Um, you can tell that through the backdrop and decor of the trilogy. Ratmansky stated, "All my knowledge about what has happened in 20th century Russia in 20th century Russia will be somehow reflected." So I want to digress just a little bit right now um, to talk about. Um, a recent project of Ratmansky's, ongoing project of his, that I think is important to keep in mind when we're thinking about uh, the Chamber Symphony. So starting in about um, in the 2000s, the later 2000s, Ratmansky taught himself to read a notation system that notated, it's called Stepanov Notation System. Uh, These notation sets Ballets were notated of ballets like um, Corsair, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, La Bayadere. The Harvard Theater Library had these sets of notations just sitting in their library, essentially from the 1960s, and no one had really touched them. So Ratmansky went there along with his wife and he learned how to read the notation. And he started reconstructing, using the notations, um, such iconic ballets as Sleeping Beauty. Uh, these were historically significant reconstructions, um, which he continues to do. And what was so interesting about these is that essentially he was stripping away the um, the Soviet changes that had been made to these pre-revolutionary Russian ballets. So the Soviets had cut a lot of the pantomime. He put a lot of it back. And the technique also looked Really different. Um, some of the Chenet turns were on point. These are turns across the floor, and you usually see them on point for a woman. He had them do them on demi point because that's what the notation said. Um, also, the legs did not go higher than hip height. Um, as he, this was very controversial, um, but he said in a ballet review interview that, um, you know, you just don't show your underwear to the czar. And don't put your leg up to here. So why am I talking about these reconstructions? Um, I wanted to bring them up because I think they help us get at a crucial aspect of how Ratmansky thinks about choreography. He has described ballet as having an ancestry that lives in the present through its steps, which of course are passed down from teacher to student or dancer to dancer. He says, genetically, ballet carries the memories of all these people. So it's like ballet has a DNA that is carrying the DNA of all these past performers with it. He also speaks of the extensive archival research that he does as a way to communicate with past dance makers. So staging or restaging their works becomes this act of of homage. And I think it's this almost, um, uh, like, shamanic way of thinking about dance where the choreographer and later the dancer is acting as a medium, in a sense, for these prior artists. Um, all with the intent of memorializing the past in a living performance in the present. Wait a second. Is that what I wanted to show you? Let's start here. Okay. Okay. So this turn toward choreography as the creation of living memorials becomes most explicit in the Chamber Symphony. The New York Times called the ballet the pained dark heart of the Shostakovich trilogy. And it seems that the individual that Ratmansky wants to communicate with here is Shostakovich himself. Um, Ratmansky has long had an affinity for Shostakovich's music. He used it for Bolt, for Bright Stream, for a number of other ballets, and it was also the first music that, to which he composed one of his first choreographic essays. The Chamber Symphony is set to an orchestration of Shostakovich's most personal string quartet, the Eighth Quartet. And it presents us with a main character who kind of is supposed to be Shostakovich. Uh, when I was doing the research for this article, uh, Ruben Martín Cintas, uh, whom I interviewed, he was a principal dancer at that time. Um, he told me that the ballet mistress for the production, Nancy Rafa, who works very closely with Bratmansky, she in rehearsal went into very, very great de- detail about how the stages of Shostakovich's life related to the ballet. For example, there's a, a section with klezmer music in the uh, second section. And this is supposed to be when Shostakovich is reflecting on the horrors of World War II. Also, the final scene of the ballet, let me see if, We'll see the final scene of the ballet in a moment. Um, The Shostakovich figure goes and and manipulates the dancers into almost like a a monument, a constructivist monument, and then kind of slinks off the stage, unable to look at what he's created. Uh, Sintas told me that this was supposed to be when he's composing his last symphony. So In the ballet, everything is being filtered through Shostakovich's eyes, um, through the eyes of a very tired and tormented soul. And there really is, there's a lot of watching in the ballet, in the Shostakovich trilogy as a whole. And that watching can vary in tone from a more sympathetic witnessing. You know, the ensemble witnesses the soloist, the soloist witnessed the ensemble, and it has a more um, solicitous tone to something that's outright threatening, um, threatening and, and has more of a sense of you're being surveyed, you're being watched, you're being surveyed. And this, this theme of watching is intensified by the grim faces on the moving backdrop by George Sipin, you can, you can see them a little bit here. Um, these faces are based on a painting by Pavel Filanoff entitled Eleven Heads. And Filanoff was a, a modernist who had a kind of mystical um, theory of art. He was persecuted. Um, he died in the siege of Leningrad. And his paintings were not shown in Russia well, they weren't accepted into the Russian Museum until 1989. So it's not accidental that it's his paintings from his his heads from his painting that appear in the backdrop of this ballet. As an aside, this painting is actually available at walmart.com. I was looking for the best, clearest image of this painting, and you can buy this on walmart.com. So Poor Pavel Filinoff, you know, he's really he really lost, he missed his moment. He doesn't know that he's now quite famous. All right, moving on. So typically, Shostakovich has not been a composer of choice for 20th or 21st century choreographers. Dance critic Arlene Croce stated bluntly in 1967 that every single ballet she had ever seen to Shostakovich was bad, In the West, we have this this model of a fruitful partnership between, or an ideal partnership between choreographer and composer in George Balanchine and Igor Stravinsky. Um, No such luck for Shostakovich. After um, his ballet, The Bright Stream, was denounced in Pravda, he stopped composing ballets after that. Um, the, ballet, the article in Pravda, which was called Ballet Falsity, uh, 12, was followed 12 days later by another attack in Pravda. This was on his opera, Lady Macbeth of Midsent's district. And so to have two articles in Pravda, which is essentially the mouthpiece of the Communist Party and probably Stalin himself, um, within the space of two weeks would be a very, very concerning occurrence for anybody. <laughs> Uh, not only he feared for his career, but also for his personal safety and this set up the one of the fundamental dynamics in his career um, where he was in and out of the good graces of the authorities, um, depending on the music that that he was writing or um, various other factors as well. Rotmansky, um is definitely aware of of these facets of Shostakovich's life he stated in an interview "Um, I was reading a comparison of Shostakovich and Stravinsky there was a comment that Stravinsky's language and his structures are so much more sophisticated, interesting, and developed there was another comment that if you compare them to runners in the Olympics one is running with Nike slippers and one is running with metal chains knowing that he will probably be shot in the end In addition to the sympathy, to his sympathy for the difficulties of Shostakovich's life, Bratmanski also says that Shostakovich's way of of reflecting reality was hugely influential on him. He says ballet shouldn't be one color. Uh, Bratmanski's choreographic tendencies and Shostakovich's music overlap in how they Delight in constantly shifting the tone of a piece, um, the mood, the points of view, um, the, the messages. Just when you think you're on on solid ground, there's a shift, and and you're not sure. You have to kind of start all over again. And he he accomplishes this through devices such as irony, um, parody, citation, allusion. <clears throat> And this is one of the things that makes his music interesting as well. So I see see something similar in in Ratmansky's work, um, especially in the Shostakovich trilogy, uh, in how there's there's an ambiguity in how the dancers, especially the ensemble, um, in what their personas are supposed to be. They might start out one way, flip to something else, and then end up in a completely different place. So, for example, in Symphony Number no. Nine, the ballet begins with this very optimistic, almost militaristic music. The, uh, one of the lead dancers mums uh, playing a little uh, a little drum, like the little drummer boy, and so you get you get the sense that you know these are the new Soviet recruits for something. Um, there's this relentless optimism happening. As the ballet progresses we have this scene where the ensemble is standing in line formations and um, it's quite dramatic. They all drop to their knees somewhat jerkily and then after a pause drop to their elbows, after another pause drop to their sides and then lay flat on the floor like they're all dead. And it looks like a slow motion firing squad scene. So. And then they move on and they get up and become something else. Uh, so it, this, is, I mean, this is part of the abstraction that Rotmansky is interested in. But I think it's also... Um, Rotmansky never... He, he doesn't want his ballets. There, there should always be darkness in addition to lightness. They should always be there and both be present at the same time. Now, the music for the Chamber Symphony was written as a memorial. Shostakovich wrote it in memory of the victims of the Dresden bombing, and possibly he wrote it as uh, a memorial to himself. He wrote a letter to his friend, Isaac Glickman, where he stated, possibly ironically, that this quartet was going to serve as his epitaph. The main theme of the ballet contains Shostakovich's initials D Dmitri S C H Shostakovich, transposed into the notes D E S C H in the German notation system, and you can see it up up here. It's a little fuzzy, but um, so this is this is his D S C H theme. He's he used it in many compositions, but it's pretty prominent in the chamber symphony. It's it's what opens uh, the piece of music. It opens with the DSCH theme. As dance critic Marina Hars writes, in essence, the music repeats the words, me, 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 me. Um, much of the rest of the quartet consists of citations from other Shostakovich works. So again, this is, it's a very self-referential piece. Uh, for example, there's, uh, there's a melody from... Um, his condemned opera, Lady Macbeth of Mitzent's District. Um, so musicologists have a lot of fun going through and finding the citation and figuring out what it means and how it means for the, the meaning of the piece. The quartet has been criticized by musicologists as being um, too straightforward for Shostakovich of a description of, of kind of unrelenting suffering. Um like it just, the message is just, I am suffering, I am suffering with no, with no development. I don't personally think that's true, but we could say here that adding choreography to this mix, adding dancing to the piece, to the music, um, helps open up that, that um, internally absorbed quality of the music. Because you're giving you're giving this whole piece of music that's so identified with Shostakovich, to other performers to perform. Um, it's not just the Shostakovich figure either; it's it's others as well. All right, so let's we're going to watch this opening clip. That was the Dsch theme. Here it is again. And you'll, you'll notice that the people who are dancing to the DSCH theme are not Shostakovich. Here again, you see them watching. Okay, it's sort of solicitous. But then they drop him and stand away like they're afraid. to this pose over here on, on the left, um, where the dancers are folded over their feet. Just keep that in your in your head for later okay i 'm going to stop it there if we have time at the end then we 'll go back and, and watch the rest of it uh, that 's uh, David for those of you long time San Francisco ballet watchers. Uh, <clears throat> so, as I said, we have other dancers performing that Dsch theme. So it's like the people on everyone on stage is functioning as um, some kind of projection of of his mind. As a memory, they are witnesses. They echo his steps. Um, they echo his steps. They perform steps for him, perform steps that he has done for him. And also movement phrases that are identified with one character are later performed by another character um, in a way that with the switch in context, you get a different meaning. It's almost like um, leitmotifs in music, or actually it's almost exactly like that. And we see this especially in the relationship between the two final potida de in the ballet. Um, first, let me say a word about the probable identities of the three female soloists in the work. The first woman, who is here on my right, Sasha de Sola, played by Sasha de Sola, this is probably a woman named Tatiana Glivenko, Shostakovich's first love. He met her at a sanatorium in the Crimea when he was recuperating from tuberculosis at the age of 17. And as she is in the ballet, she was historically, she was reputed to be a bit of a flirt. Second, we have a figure who is probably Nina Vazar, who was Shostakovich's first wife and the mother of his children. Um, her tragic death from cancer in 1954 is referenced in the ballet. She collapses on the floor at one point and is whisked away, and then brought back, held aloft by these, um, these four men. This is one of the most poignant uh, moments of the ballet. Shostakovich is reaching her, but she's always out of reach, and then she's carried off the stage, and he collapses, which he did in real life. He had a nervous breakdown after Nina Vazar died. And then finally, the, the last woman in the, in the last pas de seems to be Shostakovich's last wife, Irina Stupinskaya. She was a literary editor, 20 years his junior, and she really helped bring stability to his life, and she helped take care of him in his old age. And so tonight when you watch, I'd like you to see how, if you can notice, that in the Padada de with the Nina figure. Um, there are several steps that are later step sequences that are later repeated in the Pada de with the Irina figure. And this gives the effect of something where Irina is is um, helping Shostakovich relive his memories of his dead wife. Um, she's also Pulling him up off the floor. She she literally pulls him up off the floor with her steps. She does this long, drawn-out develop a la that then um, propels sideways, propels herself sideways, and also propels him sideways. So she gets him moving again. Now, uh, this is the final image. Now, throughout chamber I also see these you see these little hints that Ratmansky is not just memorializing Shostakovich's inner life here, but he seems to be gesturing toward other artists as well. For example, the Philonoff painting. Um, But this being Ratmansky, who is a a dance history fan um, and an extremely knowledgeable dance historian, um, we've come to expect that he will pepper his ballets with dance historical references. So, for example, let's look at this last image where the dancer is bent over the front leg with her, f- her hands behind her and fists. Um, this this is pretty, rec- aside from the fist part, this is pretty recognizable as the pose of the dying swan. This dying swan solo was choreographed by Michelle Fauquin in the early 20th century for ballerina Anna Pavlova, and this It's a seven-minute solo to Saint-Saëns' Carnival, The Animals. And this pose where she finally folds over her leg, that's when the swan dies. So you've got this, um, that pose. You've got dancers folding into that swan pose, but it's like they've got their hands handcuffed behind their back. So it's this incredibly um, resonant image of of art being... (laughs) literally smashed down, almost like into a grave, and confined. Um, Also, this pose is immediately, for me at least, calls to mind the great Bolshoi ballerina Maya Plisetskaya, And Maya Plisetskaya was um, Rotmansky's idol. Um, He did not miss any of her performances. He would sneak into the Bolshoi Theater to see everything that she did. And she was really well-known as an interpreter of The Dying Swan. Her swan had a little bit of a different character to it. Um, it had a little more, little more struggle in it. And this was probably fitting with her personality. She was someone who, um, in, in many ways, went head-to-head te- head head with the authorities uh, during the Soviet period, so she was another one of these one of these people who, although being a revered Soviet artist, had many um, difficulties and run-ins with the government that had impacts on her career so when I see a pose like this and this this sort of chain of citations dance history citations comes into my mind it's almost like um, Intentionally or not, the the memorial circle is being widened and these other figures from this period or who are affected in this way are also part of what's happening on stage. So to conclude, um, I think the Chamber Symphony is um, a great example of what scholar Marian Hirsch termed post-memory. And this is where a third generation removed from a traumatic past creates its own imaginative representations of that past. Uh, she was writing specifically with regards to the third generation removed from the Holocaust. But I think it works well here as, as well. Um, what Romanski is offering us is his imagining of what Shostakovich's interior world, his private interior world was, what he he was feeling, what he was going through. And that was something that could not, absolutely could not have been visible and to a certain degree could not have been completely visible uh, during, in his music, during his own time. So I think clearly such a form of choreography seems to be a way of working through or coming terms with a Soviet past, definitely in a way that we had not seen so explicitly from Ratmansky before, and um, one could argue haven't seen quite as blatantly since. And to this I really attribute the influence of the music here. As I mentioned earlier, the Chamber Symphony is unique among Shostakovich compositions for its straightforward and unambiguously mo- melancholy and mournful tone. Um, the final scene of the ballet, as I mentioned, um, Shostakovich just leaves the stage in a funk, hunched over. Um, so this is it's a quite pessimistic view. Uh, <clears throat> I think with Ratmansky and with as with Balanchine, although in a different way, you really, you have to go back to the music in order to understand um, what's driving him to make a certain piece. And recently, um, I had the opportunity to interview him, and I asked him about the new ballet that he's making for American Ballet Theater, to Glazunov's The Seasons, which we will be fortunate, fortunate enough to see here next year. Um, and so I asked him, okay, you know, what why did you decide to use this piece of music? You know, why this ballet now? And he told me, well, I'm working my way through a list of Russian composers. So for him, it really goes back to it goes back to the music. Um, so I think if we want to see, okay, well, what what's he gonna do next? We could probably go through and look at the Russian composers who compose for ballet and figure out, okay. Who's he already used? Who hasn't he used? And then we'll have our composer. We'll know what, okay, he's going to work to so-and-so's music next. Um, it's just, it's, it's, an, interest, it's an interesting uh, way to think about picking your next piece of choreography. Um, but as I said, we'll see it at SF, SFB next year. Uh, thank you all tonight. I, I hope you enjoy the Shostakovich trilogy, and thank you for your attention.
0: Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.